Welcome to the Five Minute Mind Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up in this episode, I'm joined by the editor of Bleeding Cool website, Rich Johnston. We're talking the show and Alan Moore's cinema. Alan Moore, the comic book writer of Watchmen from Hell, V for Vendetta, probably my favorite writer of all time, as I mentioned in the episode, has uh, had his first screenplay produced at, uh, in a possessory credit along with the director, Mitch Jenkins. After making a cycle of short films, the show, his first feature film. But first, uh, what I watched this week, really only one title I want to talk about, The Misfits, the John Huston film, which most film historians will talk about in terms of it being Marilyn Monroe's last movie, which is what has scared me off from ever getting around to watching it, just because you have all these stories about Marilyn Monroe a year away from dying, and uh, the film having to stop midway through. So you just assume the movie's a mess. And even with John Huston, that is not the case. Uh, I finally watched it for the first time. And one of the really cool things about it is it's written by Arthur Miller, even though for Marilyn Monroe historians, they were um, their marriage was d- dissolving by this point. But it's a screenplay written by Arthur Miller in a very late 50s American existentialist mode, but written so directly for Marilyn Monroe. And I'm trying to think of other Marilyn Monroe dramatic parts. Like she's played such a femme fatale mall. She was in All About Eve, Nassau Jungle. But this movie in particular, it has a great writer writing a loving part for his actress wife. And it comes across the... The key exchange in here, which I feel like has been recited at Infinitum, uh, when it, I came to it, I wasn't, I didn't know it was coming. It's a scene between uh, Monroe and Clark Gable's character. It's also Clark Gable's last finished film, and uh, Clark Gable says, "You are to Marilyn Monroe, you are the saddest girl I've ever known." And Marilyn Monroe says, "Oh, most men think that I'm really happy." And Clark Evil says, no, that's because you make men happy. They think that. And that's not the exact quote, but that is um, the spirit of the film. And there's there's just, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's, again, I'm going to, uh, there's that late 50s, early 60s train, uh, Hollywood trying to use European existentialism and trying to have a foreign film feel to it. And John Huston really does. Uh, line up the the proceedings uh clark gable's stunt work in it is amazing but it marilyn monroe's performance i was unprepared for and amazed by so on this episode we're discussing uh alan moore the comic book writer who throughout his career a lot of his comic book work has been even though he's arguably one of the greatest creators in the comic book medium his comics as a writer has been called very cinematic. Uh, a lot of that because at his earliest deck, his first decade really uh, in the eighties of being a creator, he pushed the nine panel grid, which feels like a step, like oftentimes like a, um, sometimes like a static shot. He also has a technique where he shows the same thing over and over and shows the motion going within it. Cause the big difference between comics and uh, film is that, even though if you go back to the Scott McCloud definition, technically celluloid is a comic just because it's 24 frames uh, of successive sequential art. 
one thing Alan Moore always makes a distinction between is that when those 24 frames play per second, uh, time is controlled in a different way, where by the creator and in a comic, time is controlled by the reader. And that leads to a certain... I frequently use the term maximalism with Alan Moore. Like, I feel like Alan Moore really got to me at an early age uh, as a reader and introduced me to a lot of these impressively overly researched, um, deep, detailed um, comics where they were, they were, seemed perfectly readable in the moment, but when you once you step back after having finished them, you were impressed that a human mind could come up with this. The most obvious version of this is if you read From Hell, his uh, Jack the Ripper series with Eddie Campbell, which we talk about, Rich Johnson and I talk about the adaptation of later in this episode. Each chapter has a appendix where it shows the amount of research he put into it and how much literal dialogue he used from like overheard uh bystanders in the late eight in the late 1800s in london and sometimes modern day more especially has been kind of show-offy of this research because it's so daunting uh like th- his work m- helps for me reread but he's always been talked up his entire career, mainly during the 80s, the cinematic influence. Uh, and since I read him as a teenager, what he talked about, or these creators he talked about influencing him, were people I looked into. It was really odd to come across the uh, editorial finesse of a director like Nicholas Rogue through a comic book creator. But the most one of the most daringly non-linear uh, editor directors you know nicholas rose star as a cinematographer if you look at the dr manhattan stuff in watchmen or just how alan moore in his work tend to look at time as a fourth dimensional um all things happening at once it really had an interesting approach to when you took took on film so all this is also going around the point of Alan Moore started getting adapted, which is a big chunk of the episode, very badly. He uh, Most of his movies took his very complex execution of these big ideas, these big complex ideas, and would uh, pare them down to their most stupid, obvious core. And it, one of the critiques of Alan Moore as a creator is that he hadn't actually created a lot of this stuff. A lot of what he's done himself is involved. It brings a lot of creativity to older IP. Uh, Watchmen was based off the Charlton characters. Uh, Miracle Man, Marvel Man, Swamp Thing. A lot of his other works are uh, a very thin pastiche with a meta commentary on it. But it doesn't also take away from how much joy and reverence he would bring to these subjects all this goes to say that i've been waiting a long time for him to work on film and he did a cycle with mitch jenkins uh that started out as a burlesque short that alan moore then wanted to write help 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 out right that turned into um this cycle 
that started with a short film act of faith then upon reflection jimmy's in a professional relationship and his heavy heart and then this turned into basically prequels for the feature film we're going to talk about the show which rich also points out is alan moore has written the pilot of and has plotted out five seasons worth of a television show for now the thing i love about alan moore's work is his mastery of the comic medium and knowledge of how art affects us and uh, makes illusions for us and, and what stories do to us and i hope i feel like a tv show might be a fertile playground for um alan moore and mitch jenkins to gain a mastery of the film medium which and this is not to take away from the show the show is in many ways a really light, fun distillation of a dark universe. That's uh, the as as Rich points out, uh, the prequel, the cycle is very dark, and the movie is very funny, um, which means that this could be all things to all people. Hopefully, um, if it ever gets made. Anyway, on with this episode. You were the one. It was it was in two thousand six, and your are in the gutters article where you um, had the. Uh, I, I remember I remember where I was when I read the article about Alan Moore coming out against the V for Vendetta movie. Yeah, it, that was a hell of an interview. Um, actually, you know I'm gonna start recording now because you might be you never know. Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, that was a hell of an interview. Um, that was. Uh, it was a bunch of stuff. It was actually been turned down by a rival uh, reporter because they didn't want to annoy DC Comics. And so he pulled his, uh, basically his name off FIFA and Data, off all the films, anything at all, did you know, all that kind of stuff. He dissociated himself from the movies. Um, he, had, he he announced his new book, Jerusalem, which he was just starting. I forgot about that. I do remember that. That yeah. was the and he also he also announced his marriage, all in one go. So wow. that was that was uh, that at the time that was the biggest article. In terms of traffic that had ever run on comic book resources. So wait, how many time. how many times have you actually interviewed Alan Moore? I've interviewed him once, properly okay. once. I've met him a few times, but actual interview that was the once. Okay, I've called him a few times and asked a question. If there's been something here and there, but a proper interview that's only happened the once. Uh, usually, when we are good and cool, have an Alan Moore interview. Uh, Ad Tantamed is the usual guy to go to for. He's known Alan a lot more than I do. So. Okay. Well, part of the reason I've been reading you for years is I think there, I feel like there's a kindred spirit in that. For me, in many ways, even though this is technically a movie podcast, Alan Moore for me is kind of. If you ask me at any given point, since I've since I've been an early teenager and started reading post puberty, who my favorite writer is, it might have changed a little throughout the years, but for the most part, it's been consistently Alan Moore. And like he's, yeah. like he's just kind of been a morning star for me, and I get the sense a little that's from you too like i, I always lo- love on, on bleeding cool whenever i notice you call something the watchman of like you uh, i may destroy you or tom king's vision you're like this is the new watchman like that's your highest praise I'm, well it's it's more like what is this mean what is this intending to do this is doing things that watchman was trying to do that's probably more of it so there's like an ambition i think yeah. So there's different praise, not so much even, you know, a, 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 if it's something to achieve, actually really trying to move things, push things, change things. 
and that was what Watchmen was. Yeah. Um, so there are a few, and sometimes there's a few like surface similarities which are handy to grab onto. Yeah. But yeah, I thought I thought I, I thought I may destroy you was a, a good example of that. Someone trying to do something new with television, and with a whole bunch of different tools, and um, and also you know the fact that it was you know twelve episodes long, you know it helps. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's also that like maximalist trying to get everything in, but also feeling like all the details matter and that the creator knows all the details. Like, yeah, yes, absolutely, definitely. Um, so I guess uh, we should start off just trying to go through uh, Alan Moore's history with uh, the movies, which, um, when I go through his IMDb, there's a credit on there I didn't recognize at all from 1983 called Ragnarok. Yes. Now that I think that was wasn't that an adaptation that some has done of his. Uh, I remember that being anything that existed. He's got Maybe a story credit on it. Yeah, that's probably what it is. I no, I think it was something that was adapted with his blessing, but it was like a video release thing. It was like direct to video. Okay. Um, I do you know what? I haven't seen it. Um, I don't think it's particularly well regarded, but it was something done. Something done, but was it was fine. Okay, I think fine. not well regarded is going to be a theme of a lot of the early stuff for. <laughs> For this like but, but again this was something that alan actually signed up to i think it was something like yeah of course you can adapt my 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 thing as a little video he's that was that was never an issue with him i don't think that's there, what I, I seem to recall i think that was it i'd have to check but yeah i and, and another theme of this as we go further into it, it the timeline is how much alan moore was okay with this for a while until gradually one by one well, he, yeah yeah he hadn't, he hadn't been worn down by the uh by, by the, the inexorable creep of the whole thing, um, yeah, and, and when having to meet movie people, and then there was the uh, the uh, deposition at uh, Fox, just out, off of Soho Square, I think, um, for many hours over the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, cast of characters lawsuit, and I think once that all kind of, that all kind of adds in with also his um, despair at movies and movie making in general, um, it definitely turned him against the process. Yeah, you know, even if even Terry Gilliam doesn't think you can make Watchmen. I mean, can anyone, you know? So there was that aspect too. So I guess the movie people really started coming at courting him after the big 86 Renaissance and maybe mainly Watchmen was the first real property. Yeah. And, and Gilliam was one of the, it seems like they met a few times and talked about it at least. I think so. Yes. I mean, they're, they're, again, you, one might even see them as kindred spirits. So yes. Okay. That makes sense. Um, can you talk about, do you know much about where, how far Moore got on, like, wasn't he supposedly offered the Robocop sequels before Frank Miller yes. was? Well, he was offered it. I believe he turned them down. Uh, but I believe he did. He was actually, he was, that was definitely a, uh, an offer was, offer was made to him. And I don't think he was interested. I believe that's correct. And the same would have been so for like, like the Robots. Silver Surfer movie too, right? Uh, there, there, no, see, no, that I don't know. Um, I'd have to check that one. I don't know that one. Um, I do remember the Robocop one spe specifically, and you can, I guess you can see, for those are the sequels, you can see what actually did happen to Frank Miller's script as evidence that he was, he was right about that as well. I don't know this other stuff. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Alan will have been offered a lot, and we probably don't know most of them. And mostly it could be case like someone ringing him up and him saying no. Okay. But that has happened a lot. Do you were there any other movies that popped up around this time that you know of? Besides, I mean, we're going to get to Fashion Beast here in a second. But... I was about to say Fashion Beast. Um, not that I know of. Um, again, it would be people. This is a time when you know comic book writing wasn't even well regarded, even someone like Alan Moore. Right. So if anyone was going to do a film, it would be an adaptation of his kind of thing. So let's take your thing and we'll get a real writer to turn it into a film. So that would, right. I'm sure, have been the uh, discussion back then. And then when things like Watchmen and things could happen, it's like, oh well, maybe you know. 
we get this comic book writer to do a screenplay and then we can we can fix it we can, we can change it and make it work and maybe there'll be some good ideas in that and um, because what you also start to see was then fans of his start to move up through um, the echelons of hollywood mm. and this is often the way this happens there's so many big movements in in hollywood that basically is what the people in charge liked 10 20 30 years ago and you can sort of see the emergence of things like i don't know well actually something like marvel mcu or things like the transformers movies or the turtles movies there's there's a certain moment where the people in charge were eight when they loved them and now they're in charge and they get to play and they get to the, i don't know if you've read um even dawkins uh eltingville uh um, not, I, I think i may have read the like the first issue a long time ago did a, he did a recent uh, revert of uh revisiting of these characters as they've now grown up and one of them has now just got a job at I think it's DC Comics, <laughs> and is about to start doing all his terrible fan theories, and he's going to make them all canon. And everyone's just like, oh. and just heads in their hands about this. Oh, finally, you caught. But no, but that, but that's. But, and you know, a few people you can point to and say, well, that's clearly what happened. So there's, but there, I think that's true. Very much true in Hollywood. There's a lag, a cultural lag, maybe about thirty years between where where somebody who was a young teenager really liked something, and then when they're in their early forties and they get to green light things. And you sort of get these echoes, these cultural echoes go through society. And I think to some degree, that might have been a bit faster than Alan, but there was definitely the idea of people who liked his stuff five years ago now being in a position where they can say, right, let's hire him for a thing. Well, and Alan not really interested. I, one of, I was reading one of the interviews where he was from like 2006, where he was describing why, you know, he was trying to explain uh, taking his name off, leaving all this stuff. And one thing that kept, kept hitting me over and over it's really in in the 80s too but also then is just like if he had like a big hollywood agent which anyone would cover recording him now would have at the time none of this would have happened it feel like like all these things all these everything he was asking for was completely and utterly reasonable absolutely um of course you know the publishers comic book publishers didn't do agents um it wasn't a thing i mean it's, it is now Mm -hmm. uh, it's something much more now, but it wasn't a part of the conversation. It was, it was something you'd expect it to do because these were comics. Yeah, I mean, at, at the best, I mean, they could be considered akin to like magazine articles rather than novels. So, I mean, you're not really going to get agents for that kind of thing. You're not going to get agents for comics. Agents wouldn't even take it. It's not something that people would do. This has now changed, and I've, I think I do on Think on Bleeding Cool recently, where I've basically been looking at all the graphic novel sales in the last couple of years to um, big publishers um, and I basically I, I sorted them by uh, agent so you could see exactly which the agents who were selling graphic novels into publishers and I, I know that quite a few people have used that list hmm. and I really and I would like to apologize to some of the agents who have sold a lot of graphic novels on that list because I know you've had a lot of calls so apologize about that. I guess, I guess it just bugs me just because it also it, it goes to what you're speaking earlier that comic book writers it took the generational switch for like they had the respect for hollywood to come calling or or as is as the last 15 years have shown yeah. us that they can make money for these people too oh, oh absolutely but it, yes it's well the idea that you can actually make money out of this now is i mean let's be fair yeah that there was a, a certain surge in the comic book inspired movies in the early 80s and then you get another one towards the late 80s but really most comic book films of that period probably apart from Superman and Batman, lost money and lost money huge amounts. They did very poorly. It was only the very ex, uh, exception, ex, uh, exceptional version with basically the very, very best known superhero names 
that did any business. Mm. Um, every single time they came along, it was another, it was another punch. I mean, you remember when Superman movies came through? You had a state then, and they all did terribly, including some of the f- subsequent Superman movies. And then when the Batman movies came along, you had another space. You had probably had Blade, but again, most people didn't realise that was even based on a comic book. Um, it only really changed when you had when Iron when you think you had things like the Spider-Man doing well, but again, they didn't. You didn't see um, other people able to get make the money at the same time. Things like Mystery Men didn't do well, all that kind of stuff. It was only when, I really, the MCU was the one that said, everything else is not an exception. This can now be the rule. And at that point, pretty much most superhero movies, from wherever they come from, and a lot of comic book movies have done well. It's expanded the um, the lexicon. So now a lot more comic books from all different genres have been used, picked up, and... And, and, and played with in various different ways. Every time it's been an exception until the last 10 years. And now and now it's the rule that everybody always knew. Of course, they're always going to do well. Yeah. And now it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very good with hindsight. But usually it was the exception that a comic book movie would do well. If you read Alan Moore interviews, though, going into, especially with his first decade, really, of writing, like he, the number of times, like part of the thing that, I've heard uh, James Robinson talk about this before that the 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 whole renaissance of the, in the mid '80s really came because it was these comic book uh, people bringing in outside influences, and Alan sure. Alan Moore talks a lot. He, he and he has some very specific film references he constantly would bring up. He would bring up Nicholas Rogue. He would talk about uh, Robert Altman's Secret Honor, or it was clear that he. As the years go on and he's talked about movies, he's kind of said, he's like, I'm not sure I, I'm a big, as big fan of the medium, but it was clear earlier on that he that yes. he was bringing in a lot more to the table, which is why I've always been curious what his films would look like. Well, I mean, he was kind of like a young man in his 20s then, remember. I mean, now he's, you know, uh, a slightly older man in his 60s, so he's seen a lot. You mentioned the other day his birthday. Terrible. His birthday. Yes. Was, just, yes. yes um, he's seen a lot more terrible films now than he did back then. Um, he's, you know, so there's, there's also, you know, you know, the idea you can get a little bit jaded over time may also be an aspect there. Mm. Um, you're right. I mean, I mean if you want to, I say, I, I, I pretty much, I mean, okay, there was some issues, I'm sure there was some issues with budget and code and the like, but, um, actually not, not COVID, but budget, but things like, uh, I mean, you know, the show is out there. You can see what Alan Moore film looks like. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's, that, that may be the closest you'll get. Uh, let, let's go before we get to the show. Let's go ahead and talk about Fashion Beast. So it was um, uh, the Sex Pistols manager uh, was the one yes. that instigated this. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And that was it's, oh, it's very it's a it's a strange project that exists because every now and then Alan Moore, as you will know, does things that people go what, and sometimes it's just for the challenge. Some just sometimes it's to do something interesting that no one's expecting. Sometimes it's for the money and whatever, but whatever the reason, you know, he will put out a thing. And that's one of those things. It was working, fashion piece was working with um, the idea of like, you know, a, a punk and fashion icon, uh, even though there may be some dodgy aspects there as well. And it was clearly, it was, you could basically see all this stuff that Alan had been thinking about or watching or learning or looking at, or a lot of his art, you know, the, um, the art background there, um, very much um, just kind of like coagulated into this kind of, horrific 
that let's go with creature or beast, but it was definitely a, a coalescent, I think, of a lot of ideas and things that he'd seen, the way he looked at culture, the way he looked at fashion, the way he looked at the people behind it. And it all kind of like coagulated into this um, this beast. I it could well have been unfilmable. <laughs> it, it's, it's 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 not it's not a film that I'm sure many directors would like to take on because it's insane. Um, and you know, it uh, all credit to uh, Anthony Johnston and the guys at uh, Avatar Press for um, the comic book adaptation together because that pretty much was what the what the film was. I mean, if you read that, it's definitely that's the film, and I I, I can't see how it would work as a film. But there we go. It worked quite well as a comic. Yeah, I, I read the script years ago, but I remember like it, it, another recurring thing for me is, is even though he's one of my favorites, uh, the maximalism with more always like it's hard to get into it. And once you get over a hump, like I immediately embrace it and find it more fulfilling. But like usually it's a little daunting and the ambition is sometimes a little intimidating. Um, someone reading the formatting on it is like it's a 177 page script and it's Alan Moore. Yeah. Ellen Moore scripting is is kind of notorious for being very lengthy and detailed, and the screenplay format is, for lack of a better word, not. It's it's absolutely that that was definitely a, a, a one would say a clash of approaches. But again, there's no reason the screenplay format has to be that. Yeah, no, totally, absolutely. That, again, that that that's also um, a product of um, the Hollywood system. What you now think of as a screenplay is something that's been created and crafted through the industry there's no reason it actually has to look like that at all it's just that's the way it's expected to look mm. and the brevity of descriptions and all this kind of stuff now of clearly alan wasn't having any of that he wants something else but the, again there's there's no reason why i've seen i've seen film you know there were film scripts of of produced full feature films that have been written in i've seen in handwriting scribbled on or scribbled on paper mm. i've seen um you know the days before all the different rushes of uh, versions of the scripts i've seen film scripts that were rewritten on the fly with pen and pen and ink as they're going yeah. and you just get a big mess so um and of course most films aren't created on this on the screen plus all as you all know most films are created in the editing suite using whatever the hell they can get their hands on so there's no particular reason why the classic film script has to be that way it's just the machine the industry knows how to deal with that I mean, got to remember, I, I, comic book scripts didn't look like Alan Moore comic scripts before Alan Moore started writing them. That's a very um, good point. That's a very good point. so many people now do an Alan Moore script. Um, but he, again, he, he kind of like, you know, he, he already transformed one medium. Why not try and have it go in another? Maybe that's the approach. It's, I, I can see the issues people might have had with it, and definitely. But... Um, Again, it's not from a lack of ambition. No, not from a lack of ambition. I was, um, I've had this pet theory for a long time that uh, comparing um, the writer penciler dynamic in comics and to movies is actually m more similar to the writer director dynamic. The only difference is that the director has a massive uh, uh, power dynamic difference there, where the director has all the power and the writer has none. Whereas in comics. It's a little more balanced, but when it comes to the actual the creativity, like there's a lot more overlap. I would. This is just a pet theory of mine. I don't know if you. Yeah. Well, I I, I do. There, there is definitely some overlap, but you are the artist is partially the director and also the cinematographer and the set designer and the casting agent. And there's yeah, you know, where where to some degree, the writer is what well, obviously there's a director role, but is close to the producer. Mm. So he's saying all these things I want to be in there, 
but the person who's actually doing it gets to make those decisions. So you say, I, I want this, this room, is it whatever? So it's, so I think that's, it's much more of a producer role, I would say, than it is a, uh, in, in movie terms. That's, that's, so, uh, that's why producer. I said director, just because directors at the end of the day are responsible for actually getting this stuff on screen and producing it. And then, and you know, uh, um, their name is on whether it's successful or not too, or it looks yeah. right or not. That's, I, I would I would say the artist is closer to the director and the writer is closer to a producer producer director to a producer uh, writer director I would say that that's how I was doing it, but okay. um, I'm I'm not defining these terms. Okay, um, Fashion Beast. Uh, I I would say like the, I don't I just I I read the I read the script a long time ago, but I reread the comic in prep for this, and mm-hmm. there was a part of me that thought that um, just because of certain issues it was dealing with like. Um, I mean, it's kind of like a trans beauty and the beast was the way they were selling it. And some of the stuff like has, has aged pretty well. It would be pretty intriguing to see oh, someone yeah. try to make it today. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, that's Alan's work generally seems to have done. There's certain aspects of it. You think, Oh, that might be a bit dodgy, dodgy nowadays, but I, th- I don't think so. I think they generally things have been well thought through and he could justify pretty much every creative decision. Hmm. Um, you know, in the way that some, uh, I guess his contemporaries, that work doesn't quite have that, uh, doesn't hold together quite as well. So yes, absolutely. Uh, basically, it's, it's one of these things where you think, oh, I hate all these politics, all these woke politics in comic books. And it's like, you, you read Alan Moore. I mean, he's been thinking this kind of stuff for a very long time. And he's got all sorts of interesting things worked out in his head. And, you know, you might not agree with it in certain ways, but certainly he's thought things through. This is, this is why you get a visionary label by that, just because you have thought things through. And Yeah, so do we want to start to go to the um, the rest of the, the actual adaptations? Uh, I guess um, From Hell is the first one. Have you, when's the last time you watched From Hell? Uh, yeah, now that's, now that, uh, that is one, of course, that Alan agreed to. That's when he signed up. He hasn't taken his name off that. He still gets the money from that because that's something he actually agreed to. And it's an interesting it's, it's a weird because it's an interesting film. It, it literally does the opposite of the, of the comic book. In the, the comic book is a wide on it and the movie is a who done it yes and if you've read the comic book you've spoiled the film for yourself in many ways um because you realize on a twist that you already know uh whereas i think um a closer adaptation of the film might go in a different direction certainly but it might have kept that idea that we know who he is are we exploring the, the mind of the serial killer whereas that's lost really yeah you're much more exploring the mind of a of a of a, of a drugged up detective stuff which you know it's, it's, it's much it's got much more of that kind of um i guess uh conan doyle aspect to it than, than, as alan moore but I, th- I think it's an interesting film i like the way it, uh, it shows a certain society a certain well a certain kind of like kind of i guess a kind of gang culture to a world which you typically think would be much more refined so all that kind of stuff is and of course they, they grab certain lines at willy-nilly from the book and then let's just throw in a new one because that, that sounded cool um so in again, it's in no way is it representative of the comic book, but I think it's quite fun in, in its own right. Okay, and not adaptations were. I see that the you you put your finger on the who done it, the why done it aspect from an adaptation standpoint. That that has always seemed so egregious to me. That is the one that was the one that I was first started. Like I'm not sure these adaptations are gonna work. Um, I haven't watched it since it came out, since it was in theaters. Um, I mean, one of the things that works, if you see the film and you then pick up the comic book, you'll then get a totally new, different experience. You mm-hmm. can't, nothing, it starts where, where, where the film finishes almost. So, so, so you know what, so you're going to get a different story. So, you know, maybe it works as a, as a positive recruitment. They've certainly sold a lot of books. Eddie, uh, Eddie Campbell is very grateful for the film. Mm-hmm. Because when he, when he self, he self-published from hell for a while. I remember he was telling me a story of, at one point, having 
as he put it, his entire life savings being uh, kept in a, in, in a couple of uh, large uh, trucks, lorries, going through various mountains. And at any point, if they fell into the sea, that was it. He was gone. But no, they came through and it, it did fine. And then, of course, top shelf picks up later. So, and, and to be fair, I mean, you know, a lot of what Eddie Campbell has done since is, is very much that the house that from hell built. So, um, and a lot of that is down to sales inspired by the film. People went out and bought that book because you could, again, it's one of these things with the film to comic, comic film adaptations is often they don't affect the comic book sales an iota. But in certain books, when it's like, there is a thing, here is the thing. You've seen that thing. Here is the thing. There's no more. You don't have to collect anymore. There's no spin-offs, whatever. This is the thing. Mm. That could um, really drive sales. Okay. It did, and they got a good deal. I mean, it was being self-published by Eddie. That was always going to be a good deal. And then through Top Shelf, again, a good deal. So they've done very well from uh, from Hell sales that the film inspired. And the Hughes brothers, the Hughes brothers are good filmmakers. I just, I, I think it was the foundation. It was just such a foundational, like switch up the whole point of the book was always threw me off. But the, you're, yeah. you, you've made me rethink. Maybe this is a good thing in the world. Um, but uh, should we move on to League now? Well, now see, that is weird because there are League is really interesting, and I think part of it is the legal case because I did have, actually have this discussion with uh, Alan back then, where is because I, I, I got called up by some of the legal councils because the stuff I'd written about um, when it was League of Extraordinary Gentlefolk I'd written online in, of, of the Usenet news groups because it went back quite a while and they were asking me about that because that would have predated um, cast of characters screenplay being written and they were, I was writing about this future plan at Lamore so it was a nice smoking gun that they could say look how could this person say this in this year when this film so it was already being, being planned so I, I have a tiny little um I guess I have a witness statement for that, I think. Um, because it, this, and I need to be careful how I say this, because I don't want to cause any problems with anyone. Okay. Um, the film, so Lee uh, gentleman, for, for my mind, had quite a few similarities with the screenplay cast of characters. But those similarities were not with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic book. So some of the, some of the people who appear in the film, who are not in the comic book, uh, but who are in that cast of characters screenplay, so I can see potentially something that might have happened along that way, where someone says, oh, Tom Sawyer, oh, um, Dorian Gray, this is all quite fun. And I don't know if, if there was actually any kind of jump from one to the other, but it just wasn't from the, um, from the comic book, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and the film. And some of those stuff, I actually think it's quite, yeah, I love the idea of Dorian Gray as an immortal kind of creature who can't, who can't be hurt. Can be heard. I thought that kind of thing was, was fantastic and not knowing the comic book whatsoever. But it's just not a good film. I okay. mean, there's certain aspects of it that I love. I mean, things like, I love the Jekyll and Hyde. Um, the look of that, the way that appears on the screen. Um, Justin Fleming playing the both of his characters I thought was fantastic. I mean, you know, huh? Sean Connery would be would be the great Holocaust event. That seems fantastic. And But there's just, oh, it's, it, it also it fights against it. It keeps bringing in aspects that should be fight against the actual point of the film. Um, they shouldn't, you know, have, actually having cars going around Venice, it just, it, it just felt too much like you want something else. You want a different film. You've got this comic book, which you bought. And, it, and again, it's one of those things. He hasn't taken his name off it. It was bought. Yeah. It's all properly done. Um, it's just the film they made wasn't... It just feels very unsatisfying. There are aspects of that film that I really enjoy, some because they uh, replicate what the comic book does, some because they go off on their own journey and do their own things. But as a film, as a whole film, it's just very disappointing. 
I know. I when I watched it, I made the mistake of um, I was still working in a movie theater at the time, and we we watched it late at night. And I brought all the first six issues and read them right right before we watched it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, oh, oh, I just remember tell, immediately. Oh, that was just a terrible mistake. And I would mention it to friends days after, like, oh yeah, that's what I did. And, and they're like, they they gave me the traditional uh, adaptation argument of like, um, oh, the book's always better than the movie, or some variant on that. And that's not always true. Sometimes there there are ways that adaptations can complement uh, each other in good ways. But there's things where I really feel for Alan Moore just because those those first two especially just didn't seem like they were they they didn't respect the source material like at all. And you question why were they made in the first place? Well, it's you know maybe it was actually an adaptation of cast of characters with a few lines of legal sort of gentlemen thrown in. I don't know. Um, but you're right. It's it, like I said. There was there was some genuine moments in there that I really will watch again. I will watch it. I will fast forward to the bit that I like. I will watch that bit, and I will fast forward to the end and then leave it again. Okay. If it, I've just definitely done that before. In fact, I've done that with quite a few films. Um, some other adaptations, some not. But it's yeah. It it, it does seem such a, a missed opportunity because there's no reason why it couldn't be. And also, yeah. we're talking about you could absolutely adapt that as a concept and have nothing to do with the uh, comic book itself. And it will be fine. The idea of taking a whole bunch of characters from different media or, or media, uh, uh, to create a different dynamic, in this case, like replicating the, the superhero team in the, in the, in the 19th century, um, is, is, a, is a fun way to do it. But you could do it with anything. I remember when Fox bought an, op- uh, bought an option at some point for a TV series based on it. It didn't go anywhere. But um, the idea that you could actually just take a whole bunch of Fox properties from their TV shows, from their films, you could have Radar from MASH, mm. you could have Doc Brown from Back to the Future, and just put them all in the same thing and call it the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You could do that, and that would be fun. That would have a, that would be an adaptation that has nothing to do with the comics, but it might take one of the really fun ideas and aspects of the film and adapt it that way. So there's things you could do. Or it'll end up in a Space Jam movie. Uh, yeah, there is there is that. <laughs> so it's just fraught with danger. That is definitely true. Uh, but there are there are all sorts of ways one can do. I don't. I'm not in any way saying you have to be accurate to the, you have to be as accurate to the script as possible. Yeah, no, no, of course, of course. But I like yeah. the idea of being accurate to the reason you liked it, the reason it was good, and try and replicate that. That would be a great way, great way to do it if you were to do it. And you know, maybe maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. I'm I. I'm quite, I'm quite ambivalent about it. Uh, it's a good film. It's a good film. I'll enjoy that. But if it's not, it's like, oh, why bother? Why ruin that? But again, again, it sold a lot more copies of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen books that would not have otherwise sold. So more copies of the comic in the world, I think. Has. Before this point, I, I had seen uh, Alan Moore mention in multiple times in interviews uh, the Raymond Chandler quote where he said um, uh, someone someone would come into Raymond Chandler and say they, the movies ruined your books and he'd go up to a, a bookshelf and say, no, the books are still there. But so is is the well, lot. I think he used to say that. You, no, no. He used, oh, no, no. This is the point where he stopped saying that. And Yeah. Now he doesn't have the book on his shelf anymore. Okay. He's pointed out he, hasn't, he doesn't have copies of Watchmen in his house anymore. That's yeah, and to some degree that's been tainted. That, that's so that's weird and sad. But um, uh, I, I think I think it's underst- I think it can be understandable if it's no, 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 understandable. I'm not. I'm, oh, totally understandable. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm just unfortunate. Yeah. It's just really sad and unfortunate. It is. I think so. It is. It is. I. I it absolutely agree. The so it it mainly. 
I, in my head, I always thought that uh, when the, the, your article came out and um, uh, mainly about the V for Vendetta uh, adaptation, like it felt like a damn bursting because, I mean, I, I forget in the article, do they mention the lawsuit? Is that is that really the biggest the thing to it? Because uh, he, he talked about the lawsuit after it's like having a curse on it and then the, the lawsuit existing. Um, I don't know if that actually came up uh, in that interview after chat. Okay. I don't think so. I think that came later. I thought it was like a damn bursting from like little things like, um, you know, vowing never to work for DC and then Wildstorm getting bought. Um, and how... Yes, that, I'm sure. I, I think the big one was, was Joel Silver was saying uh, Alan's all on board with this. And, yeah. And it's that's just another Hollywood producer lying. But, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that a lot of people would say, oh, what you expect. But Alan clearly didn't expect that. and didn't want that. Maybe it was the, the straw that broke back because obviously he'd had lots of issues over the years. And this was the one where he goes, right, I'm pulling League from DC. I'm taking my name off all the books. So, yeah, that might have been the moment. Because it was it definitely came up as a quite a flood, absolutely. And I was on the other end. The narrative that he was complaining about stuff seems just very, very uh, unsympathetic and not really... Um, it just doesn't make sense. You're, you're not just talking about someone who is screwed, is being screwed over on creative rights, but you're also talking about someone time, time and time prove it again to be the master of the medium, where his name is on multiple titles that are frequently considered the best comic books ever made. Yeah, like absolutely. any other medium, no one would, no one would say like, "Oh, are you are being a you know a prima donna about this?" No, I, I, well, I, oh, yes, that's very true. But also it's because I think certain things you expect of comic book creators uh, by the comic book publishers, which were not expected with the other media, which Alan wasn't happy about. And so it's the, uh, so it's not that his objections were unreasonable, but they were un objections were unreasonable to that specific industry who had not been used to this kind of thing mm. and had different ways of working with them. Um, uh, and you can certainly see certain people benefited very much Alan's decision to, to repeatedly walk. Um, you look at something like Neil Gaiman, DC. Hmm. There's a very much moment where DC clearly go, yeah, we're not going to let, we're not going to let what happened with Alan happen with Neil. Okay. So let's come up with a deal. And also, you know, Neil is one of the world's best uh, businessmen and negotiators, but he gets residuals off the use of the Sandman trademark. Sandman was a trademark that DC created in the 1940s. Now that's impressive. Anyone who can get Warner, a couple like Warners, to, to basically cut you in on a share of a pre-existing trademark, that's impressive. So, but that he would not have got that if it hadn't been for Alan going, no, I'm off. And DC clearly going, yeah, we can't let that happen again. That's a good point. I mean, it, it, it has happened again a few times, but it's it's a this this scenario, the landscape is far better because people like Alan, and principally Alan. Yeah. To go specific stand at a specific point and went, no. Again, just very unfortunate. Um, but again, you say it's unfortunate, but for so many people, it really was fortunate by him doing that. I mean, it's just, to, you know, turning down lots of money, which is, a, as you said, I think uh, Hollywood aren't really used to. He did actually benefit uh, all sorts of people. So if, if, they, if they just, I mean, let's just say, just say um, Warners did everything Alan asked, that would have been a rule for him and nobody else. The next person comes and goes, and it goes back to rule zero. But okay. because he took that stand, and they they had to make changes for everybody else who came along. So again, you know, it's you, you know, it's, also, it's almost like he took one for the team. You know what I mean?
I want to rewind real quickly back. I think one of the, the to, to my mind, the best adaptation I've seen of Alan Moore is the uh, Justice League Unlimited episode of For the Man Who Has Everything. That's ri- I forgot yeah. it was written by James DeMattis. Yes. Well, again, someone who actually uh, respected the original. That always helps. Yes. <laughs> the comic book writer adapting it. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely short story. And it's beautifully done. And again, it's 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 told well. There are certain aspects of the current book. Um, I mean, it's the bit where you have the, where you have like Superman moving very very fast towards Mongol at a super speed, absolutely enraged, and that's that's beautifully done in the in the uh, that's a beautifully done in the current book, and it's well realised in the um, in the in the adaptation as well, because it's quite tricky to do that kind of thing, that kind of huge amount of movement and power and speed in a comic book, a static medium. So it's, but it was nice to see those little those the little things that he used in a medium that's very bad for that kind of thing and just oh well he's clearly he's clearly doing this let's just do that in the film and so yeah it's a it's a lovely adaptation you're right it takes so little and in this regard to be a good adaptation one part of it is having respect for the story you're adapting i guess um do you have uh, but back to v for vendetta do you have strong opinions on the movie the finished movie i yeah because um i think it's beautiful i think it is weird it goes off into it's stuff it actually again i have no problem with changing the comic book to fit the movie or to the new the new medium but it just has such weird choices the um the alliteration oh, it's, it's the alliteration things that was going to stick out for me as being just that just sounds so weird it's like you're trying to be more verbose i mean the that is a fairly verbose book anyway oh so what you're going to do you make it even more verbose when you turn it into a film that's strange um i think some of the performances are astonishing. I think Roger Allen is one of his best for uh Cabin Pressure at least. I get it. it's 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 I think this is one of the issues Alan I know had. It was very much this is the American take on the British story. And so a lot of the stereotypes used are the American stereotypes. It's the like it's the it's it's the Benny Hill moment that's <laughs> what was gonna get me because <laughs> Benny Hill only exists because of American tastes. That was a TV show that was cancelled, that was saved by uh, American uh, buyers who loved it, and they kept pumping it out until it died. It died its eventual uh, inevitable death. So to put that aspect, the Yakety Sack sped up stuff in the middle of it, it's oh, because we're, do- we're doing a British thing now. This is a British thing, and no, that's that's the British thing that the Americans like. And every British person I saw, like, oh, that just didn't work. Things like those aspects of that, I think, and it has spread out through the film. It's the I mean, it's again. You're talking about what's what's we've been about. It's about um, fascism versus anarchy, and film is not that. Yeah, the film has a very different. But it's and uh, this thing in the, in the in the book in the comic, V the V is not a good guy. He is a guy with a specific point of view, and he drives Evie insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he is he is anarchy. He's an anarchist to the extreme. I mean, in the in the way that he's the okay he's he's the equivalent of, of uh, Ozymandias, which is much more discussion about the actions of Ozymandias, justified or not, kind of thing. Um, but there's less about V because it's such it's much more of a rollicking. Um, we enjoy the actions of V far more than we enjoy the actions of Ozymandias. So as a result, it's we're much more likely to want to defend V than we are Ozzy. But that both acting, but both both. Uh, amoral people you, acting on their own specific ideology do you uh alan Moore says he hasn't seen any of these movies but i and i i believe him but also his critiques have been pretty 
they're, they're, they're the reason I haven't watched He's, them. Like him saying that seen, is the Bush the script, are a parable. He saw the script. He saw the script. Okay. I know that was definitely because he's commented on that and he's talked about specific aspects. And when he's commented on them, I thought, oh, well, that's clearly terrible. That won't be in the film. And then it's in the film and you go, oh, okay. So yeah, they, they just did it anyway. Um, so that's the thing. Uh, Alan actually critiqued the script for okay. them before they made it. And he pointed out some of the most ludicrous examples. Um, and then they, it doesn't matter anyway. Okay. So um, it's, so that literally is a, we literally don't care. I think it was things about using, um, was it uh, the, the postal service using the word federal in the postal service when that's not that's an American term for the post, not for British? Uh, egg, uh, egg in a basket. For that's the one that's on strange. Wikipedia. Yeah, the egg in a basket. Oh, there we go. Yeah, it's a again. He, when he mentions that, I say, well, that's clearly a place for the they just put it there. Alan, you're clearly fussing about nothing. This is just a script. They'll, they'll they'll get that research and get something get something actually in there, like French toast or something along those lines. No, no, it, it ends up being egg in a basket. That does stick out because no British person has ever said those words. These are things that were concocted for the film that okay. sounded a bit British. And again, but for me, uh, the biggest example of that is the is the Benny Hill moment because there's no way anyone would want to reference that it, at that time. In any way, you want to make any kind of point, serious or not, it's that's not the one you do. There are other things you do. You you, you do Basil Fawlty if you had to do anyone. You know, mm. um, it was just you know, you know the things that British people actually do like. And I'm afraid um, Benny Hill is the British thing that Americans like. And that throughout it. I don't think I knew you guys hated so Benny Hill that much. Um, well, he's just, he's just not, he just was never popular. He was never really popular. I mean, he was, he was, he was on. He was paid for by Americans. So it was popular anyway. There's a small fan base, certainly. But it was never, in America, it's huge. It's ridiculous. He got, he got all his money from America. And there's a few things like that. Otherwise. I can point out things like, um, are you being served? Which was very popular in the States. On the other hand, it works all the way around. Uh, Baywatch was cancelled in the States right? the first series of the season. But thankfully, those good old British people, we love Baywatch because we paid for the rest of it. I did not know um, that. Baywatch was funded by ITV from series two on season two onwards because it had been cancelled in the States. So it's our fault. So, yeah. You know, so, America, you may thank us for Baywatch and we can thank you for Benny, for, we can thank you for Benny Hill. So it all works out. Um, uh, when you go through the uh, IMDb, uh, a lot of things that come up after this point are like vague. Um, Things that he contributed to, like a mythology of. There's like Green Lantern animation things. Spawn is mentioned on his IMDb. I can't remember. A lot of that is basically stuff that he's. Sometimes a lot of that is just like, like a, like a thanks to, like in, in, just put inspiration. He, he'll turn up in like Kevin Smith things. It's just mm. because Kevin Smith wanted to put him, wanted to acknowledge his influences. So he'll appear in those kind of ways. But right, if any kind of character, I mean, those he he did that a time the tiniest bits of Green Lantern books i'm sure you know and every single one of those characters spun off into huge long um, events or mini series or series afterwards because people just love those really those, those little moments that you mentioned oh and i know that's something i was just thinking about this the other day um so the, the uh, russell t davis definitely uh, ripped off the doctor who it was just like you mentioned a whole bunch of uh, cool sounding names and then some point down the line, three or four, three or four years later, you actually bring one of those things back, or right. like Stephen Moffat does, or whatever like that. Um, you could just say the you could just say the Medusa Cascade in one episode, and then four later, four years later, you might find out what it was because at the time you don't know. So Alan does lots of that, and when he's looking at the future of the Green Lantern universe, he just throws in a bunch of really cool sounding words. And twenty, thirty years later, Jeff Johns goes right. Let's do a big event around one of these. I was going to bring so, up Blackest Night because I remember Alan Moore reading an interview around the time. He's just like, I just, that was a throwaway line. <laughs> well, they were all, they, they, there was a whole bunch of these things. And that's, 
that's the that's the other thing that Alan um, is that when he does those throwaway lines, they just sound so good and so sound so cool that if you're a person in that position, you can't just help yourself but go. Well, what is that? Let's find out. Let's 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 create a new series about those two words because they just sound so cool, and I want to have a go. Do we need to do some stuff on Killing Joke? Uh, the the, the animated version. Okay, because it has again Killing Joke gets turned up all over the place. Um, but yes, you're right. That's. I, I mean, do you know what? It's generally fine. It's just weird, weird that they have decided to have to put all the Batgirl stuff at the beginning, okay. or the, uh, the, the prelude stuff to it. If you, well, I can totally understand the idea of putting in the Oracle stuff at the end and making a much bigger story. You could adapt some of the first stories of Oracle if you want to go for the length and put those at the end of Killing Joke because that kind of works as a counter to Killing Joke. But the stuff at the beginning really didn't. It was very odd and it felt functionary and. And pointless. I mean, it's 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 not the animal's best story in the world ever. It's just a very, a lot of killing joke. I think it's down to um, it's a very very beautiful told story by Brian Bolland. Some of the some mm. of the specific aspects. I don't think some of the uh, it's the way his art style was used in that. I I think of specific things about Joker's fingers in um, Batman's cowl pulling it off his face. It's just from this such a simple thing that just really hadn't been done in the comics before. And it was beautifully done because Brian, you get to see every stitch and every scene. And something, as Stan Lee once said to me, um, all superhero comics are just an excuse for um, people to draw naked people. <laughs> it's like Greek um, athletes, it's all that kind of stuff. So everyone's performing naked and you just paint. So all these superhero suits are just painted on. And when Brian does it, he doesn't paint things off. You actually get to see the proper costumes. Mm. And so they can actually be pulled off the face that could be tugged down. Such a simple thing that hadn't been done before. Um, and so, again, it's using that kind of art style that really helps when you're doing that kind of scene in including in Joke. And that's not replicated in the animation. That kind of, those kind of, because it's a lot harder, but those kind of little details about how superheroes work on the, on the page, that was challenged in Killing Joke. And in the animation, it was just done in the same style as all the other animations. Also. So there's, uh, yeah, it's, I would say it's fine, and uh, it's got, oh, but, oh, but that beginning is really weird, and and they should maybe just had some more uh, ending instead because I could definitely see you continuing it into a story about um, Barbara Gordon um, gaining her agency, becoming Oracle, and okay. finding a new way to be. That would be the way. If you, if, if I was in charge, and I and I was told it had to be ninety minutes, that's how I would have gone. Okay, but, uh, it's weird. I guess, I guess the, the, the Batgirl sex stuff, uh, I just heard about it and I was like, I checked out. When the Joker movie came out, the, the um, it, Alan Moore's critique of Killing Joe came up in my brain a lot, where, like, he kept, you know, Alan Moore's critique of his own story is that the Joker is not a real person. You will never see this person. And I guess so many people are responding to the Joker movie as, like, mental illness being a superpower. Like, it makes you more powerful somehow. And I, I just kept thinking of Alan Moore talking about Killing Joke after the movie came yeah, out. I can see that. Well, there's, there's a lot of. Uh, inspiration of Killing Joke in the Joker, definitely. Um, the way the characters are portrayed, and I think that's uh, a strong take on it. It's yeah, it's a these aren't real characters. These aren't real people. People would not behave like this. Part of, I guess one of the things I really like about Killing Joke is that's its main central point is that 
okay, Jim Gordon is the normal person going through trauma, specifically put up on him by the Joker to turn Jim Gordon into a Batman or into a Joker or into something. And he doesn't because normal people don't do that. Mm. And that's the killing joke right there is, is the, uh, all this stuff is just fantasy or this, but people don't, this is not how people behave. It's not in real life. And in the Joker film, it's like, no, you know, that, clearly that is what happens. You do, you do paint your face and you go on to national chat show and shoot the people in the head. Um, it's, because it's it's that gap between get, get, gap between fantasy and reality. Um, people, I guess, you can look at it as a critique of like, oh, it's a gritty, realistic superhero films where, or stories where something terrible happens to the person, and they go out and put on a costume and fight crime. And the grittier and realer it is, the better it is. But Killing Joke does come and point out that no, that's not the gritty, real gritty image of, at all. If you want a real story about mental illness, so, so you can see it. As, I mean, uh, again, Alan's not a fan of it. Um, I can see why after all these years and stuff, but I definitely see it as a as a as a as a far more damning superhero critique than Watchmen is. Speaking of Watchmen, um, do you has he said anything about the uh, HBO show? No, I mean again, he, he hasn't he hasn't seen it. I mean, obviously, he hasn't even got anything to watch it on. So I'm aware. Um, I don't believe he has. It's just another thing. I don't I don't think he'll separate it in his mind from uh, the movie. Okay. Damon Lindelof said he wrote him a note and then, you know, and said, I'm never, I'm not going to say what's in the note and whether or not I got cursed after the note, but. Yeah, I have no idea if he got it. See, I, I certainly that's never come up. Uh, again, I don't speak to him a lot. And people have to know who speaks to him. Um, no, they haven't. That, that's never come up. Maybe he got it. He probably, it's, it's, it's not hard not to get, but he does get a lot of mail. That's the other thing. He's, 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 he's in the phone book. It's not, if you really want to send Alan Moore a letter, you can. It's, it's he probably gets quite a bit okay well i, I i'm gonna go check out the phone book uh, after we're done recording um <laughs> the, the watchmen's i'm not a huge fan of the snyder one but at least this is something where the respect comes in and the, the adaptation oh but again there's some aspects that i really enjoy i mean there's certain pieces i'll pick out and go oh that's just beautiful everyone will talk about the montage at the beginning i absolutely i think it's a beautiful way of showing certain scenes and again it's doing stuff that's not in the comic book but it's it's, it's finding a really good way to do something to tell that story and actually, I prefer the things, I guess, in this movie that aren't so slavishly taken from the comic book because mm. they have their own life and they don't just have to be slowed down for no apparent reason. Um, and I mean, again, there's the uh, it's I mean, I, I, I do enjoy a lot of stuff about Zack Snyder as a filmmaker, but to to specifically make choices that in Watchmen to have in glorifying the violence feels like, well, that that missed the point. There's yeah. that scene in the where uh, Dan Lawyer fighting the well, first of all, they're fighting the muggers, and they are being just as violent and as vicious and bone-breaking as Rorschach ever is in the rest of the film. And for me, that says, well, what's the difference mm. between in this film between a Night Owl silk lecture and Rorschach? There's none. And one of the points of Watchmen was there was meant to be a difference. But in the film, there's nothing. They're just as vicious and as violent as each other. And that always struck me as such a weird choice to take. But, you know, it, it looks cool, I guess. <laughs> It's just um, it just kind of fights against one of the one of the central dynamics of the, of, of the film. But there are different people with different personalities who have different choices, and they do the exact same thing in the film. I think one of the things I did admire about it was I uh, I was, used to be obsessed with the Watchmen adaptation. And I would buy old scripts, uh, the uh, older scripts off eBay, and and um, 
at least like you, you didn't have that opening film within a film where they were at the what, Statue of Liberty or constantly finding different ways That's of covering Doctor Manhattan or uh, constantly changing the ending. Quite liked the Sam Ham ending. The uh, universe has been changed. Well, what do we do now? Kind of thing. I quite like that. I thought it was quite a fun ending. I, I think I read to, that to, one. To get, rid, to get rid of Manhattan and to to be standing in our world. I thought that was quite funny. It was different. Comic book. I, 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 I guess I didn't pick I up on like it. it. I just thought it was like a, a, a Superman flying around the Earth type thing where it just reset everything. I didn't even oh, catch no, our... no, 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 it's, it's they, they, they stopped the uh, Manhattan experiment from happening in the first place. So Dr. Manhattan never exists. Okay. And so we get our own world back. And so, but except for them. So it's just them standing. I think it was Times Square. Um, and the world is not their world. There are no uh, Zeppelins in the sky. It's ours. But now they're here, so what the hell are these people going to do in a world that has no idea who they are? Hmm. I quite like that. I thought it was a fun way of doing it. It's a, it's a different take, but it's quite, I thought it was quite an enjoyable one. Sam Hans is a great screenwriter. I just feel like he was being given edicts from someone else on this. But I'm sure that's true. And of course, again, we, we, we see the screenplay. We have no idea what the film would have looked like. Right. Because it goes through all sorts of uh, journeys. Yeah, I... I, I, I... Uh, I didn't write down the the directors, but like over the years, it was like what uh, Terry Gilliam, David Haytner, um, Aronofsky at one point, right or not? Um, Paul Greengrass. Who yeah. else? I'm trying to. I'm blanking right now. No, that that those ones that come to mind. They went. They did go through quite a few. Um, which I, I can't think of anyone else in there. The Greengrass um, one would have been kind of so, interesting, at least. Oh, I think they'd all be interesting to some degree, if purely from a um, uh, an analytical fashion i'd definitely been fascinated i would i was fascinated by a michael bay michael bay version of watchmen i just want to see that sorry i'm stuck thinking about that now because these are these are the choices to be made but you kind of i look through his um animals uh, work i sometimes think if you were going to do an adaptation wouldn't you do bo jeffrey's saga i i, I don't think i've read bo jeffrey's saga it's the third warrior strip okay along with the Fighter, marvel man and bo jeffrey saga with steve parkhouse and it's um wait is this the uh um the female protagonist no no yeah. you're about to think of halo jones halo jones so, i'm thinking of halo jones the bo jeffrey saga is uh basically alan moore's version of the monsters or the adams family it's in a did he draw this no, he didn't draw this. Steve Parker's drew this. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, he wrote it. And it appeared in Warrior alongside the Vendetta of Marvel Man. And it was wonderful. It's a comedy. It's a sitcom. Um, in a, with, with a whole, with a strange twist. It's, it's all of Alan's fantasy and horror and sci-fi things that he loves in film and books. But they're all living in um, this knockdown uh, terrace house in Northampton, um, trying to get by in Thatcher's Britain. So yeah, unemployment, but if it's trying try to scam the system, various different jobs, and it's hilarious. It's funny. The, the first, I think, the first issue or story was um, the tax man cometh, and it's the first time someone from the local council has come by to collect the rents or the, the rates on the house that's, that's owed. And, and and according to the records, no one's been there for at least three hundred or four hundred years, so there's quite a lot of back payments, <laughs> and it's. And it's wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's a proper full-blown sitcom. It's like with, with the, the father, the grandparents, the strange creatures that share the, the, the children, the young ones, the teenagers. It's the whole big family. And it's very funny. And I love to see that. that. That smacks of being built to have been a TV show. 
So there's a few little things like that. In terms of big blockbusters, I mean, you know, Marvel Man's just sitting there. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about Marvel Man a lot, especially with the MCU popularity. But how it's been, it's been stripped for parts a bit. By other, yeah, by yeah. Um, sometimes quite literally. Um, I don't know if you did. You see the, um, the British version of Being Human? No. So, uh, there's a there's a, a comedy drama with a vampire, a ghost, and a, a werewolf all living as flatmates, which is a little bit Bo Jeffers, to be fair. But there's at least one scene in it which is so utterly taken literally from Marvel Man. It's the Kid, a kid, Marvel man, kid, Marvel man, whatever. Do the uh, sparing someone and then going back. I'm sorry. I, if I, 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 they, they think they think I was soft for killing them. And that exact scene, beat for beat, appears in one episode of Being Human by Toby Jones. And I was like, really? Well, I was paying homage. You were so cre- those things. Creed Detective, just the same with um, Top Ten. They take one of the one of the scenes from Top Ten. Oh, and, and yeah, yeah. Season end kind of thing. So it's there are some things that people just go snip, snip the scissors, and it will be fine. What's crazy? Ta- I really like this. talking to you, Rich. I'm realizing like you're you're making points, and I'm like, where have I heard that before? I'm like, oh, I probably read that on Bleeding Cool at some point. Probably <laughs> did read it on Bleeding Cool. Yeah, I, I, I may be recycling myself. I remember the I'm, true. I'm skipping my own stuff. The True Detective one in particular, like like I, after that came out, I went back and reread it, and was like, wow, but. But yeah, that's what happens when you're uh, so influential. Um, if Alan Moore won't let his work be adapted, well, damn it, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to take the bit that we like and we're going to do it. And no one can say anything. And no one will know what it is because not enough people read his stuff. So we'll just get it through the editors and no one will care. And no one's going to actually adapt the uh, the uh, source material anymore. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess. See. The the one that gets the respect level the most still to me is the HBO show, Watchmen show. Like that, that... Oh, I, I, I I did enjoy it. I definitely, enjoyed it. I I like the fact that it did something different. It went. Uh, it took a different story. It was going in a different direction. It had something different to say, I guess. Um, and it that it, it it took on the whole um you know uh, Black Lives Matter propaganda as a, as a aspect of American society as part of its um, DNA. And I thought that was very interesting. And I hadn't seen that done that well. On television at that point quite a few people have, have kind of caught up a bit since then um but at that time i thought that was that was a fantastic bit of work so it's very enjoyable i mean it's it's arguable to see how much watchman was it and um and again this oh is again ozymandias is really weird in that show there's, there's so much <laughs> aspects of that. yeah that, that's just all that there's some there are aspects of that show which i just think are absolutely awful and they mostly involve uh, ozymandias but then they are also the kind of batshit crazy kind of stuff that I quite like when uh, I don't know Pennyworth does it, which I utterly adore. Um, and that has no base, that's no relationship to any kind of reality whatsoever, but it's really enjoyable. So again, so certain aspects of, I guess, the Watchmen TV show, HBO Watchmen, I, I definitely enjoyed. Mm. Um, but again, it, it, but generally there were the parts of them that weren't actually uh, Watchmen. They did do that lovely little trick. Spoilers here, but that's, I was very impressed by the. The scene where it's it's the uh, someone who's it's the yes it's Man, it's Manhattan in different times and asking the question how did you know about this? Oh, the, the second to last episode. Now. Okay, yeah. Yes, there we go. That I love that. I didn't know about it. I mean, I know about it now. That was very clever. He knows about it now. That was just one of those little moments of a, a self-causal loop that I really enjoyed. But that replicated it when some of the aspects of Watchmen, I guess, the self-causing bits, the bits, the, the loops that I really enjoyed when reading it. That was a that was a very uh, a satisfying loop within that entire TV show. It goes back to what you were saying about the adaptation of. Um, uh, you, you were specifically talking about the costumes, but just like um, 
making it work in a different medium. Just the add up, like the, 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 the clockwork, like structure, like all the details yeah. coming into it. Like uh, it proved that you can do that on, on film in a way. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was, I was impressed sure. with that, that aspect to it. No, I, I, I thought I was, I thought it was very enjoyable. Um, I don't, you know, Alan won't watch it. Also, it's, it's also, it's, it's one of those things because Dan Lindelhoff is so inspired by Alan Lloyd. Right. Right. So clear. He goes on about it all the time. And he and he's he's adapted the work, and he and he knows that Alan hates the work, and also Alan, also Alan really, the, the the TV show that Alan has given the most sustain for publicly is Lost, so, you know, it's like to have that. I mean, that can't be. I mean, I feel sorry for that. I mean, you know, obviously he's, <laughs> he's got all the uh, acclaim. So many people love his work, and will tell him day in day out that something inside him knows that Alan Moore doesn't like his work and knows his name. And really doesn't like what he's done. That, that, that can't be nice, poor fellow. I can't, I can't, I don't envy him that. That's a shame. Because, uh, you know, clearly the, the man loves, loves Alan's work so much. Yeah. Um, and, and it's been very, and it's been very interesting. We, we actually talked about this. Um, the direct uh, influence of Watchmen on other media. It's how American television show format that you get on things like Netflix or HBO in general, it bears a lot of its structure to Watchmen. And that's because Lost took things from Watchmen and everyone's done things like the idea that you have not only have episodes that have to be watched in a very specific order, but there are entire flashback episodes within that. So, you know, episode five will be a flashback episode to well beyond. And now that's a standard way of doing things. I was watching that in the new series of Mythic Quest. It was, uh, and it was very enjoyable. But that was what you really only saw that on TV the first time in Lost. And Lost took that from Watchmen. Um, when you have the um, the um, uh, Manhattan uh, episode specifically, um, and so you, but that's not the way it's done now. I mean, you have that in Squid Game. You know, everyone now does that as a format. If you've got like a twelve-episode series, well, episode three, episode four, we'll, go, we'll take all the characters, we'll go back to see what they were years before the show starts. So you mean, then, you so, you mean like every other episode being a flashback is what you're not so much every other, but you have you will have one or two episodes that will not um the, the, the main plot will not progress at all. Instead you'll flashback and you'll learn more about the characters. Okay. Fall forward with that information. And that really hadn't been done on television until uh, to Lost. Right. And Lost took that lock stock from the Watchmen. Yeah. But now it's the one does it. So you can see that kind of influence of one medium on another. Well, all this has been prelude to uh, us talking about the show, which I, I, show. I yeah, I've been excited about um, just uh, all. We've been talking about this just because Alan Moore is clearly influenced by film. Um, he's talked about doing it. All these adaptations have happened that have gone awry. And what would happen if he actually had control or actually decided to put himself into making a film? And we finally got we finally got the answer with the first uh, five short films, the uh, showpieces. Yes, the showpieces. There's a uh, Act of I, Fate, I'm... Upon Reflection, Jimmy's End, A Professional Relationship, and His Heavy Heart. And there's also um, uh... oh, but then then there are others. Yeah, I mean, Hungry Heart is the other. So the showpieces films, which were made over a number of years whenever they kind of got the funding for it and got the ability to put them together. Uh, I, I've been waiting for years for Alan Moore cinema, basically. And I, I gotta be honest, I was underwhelmed. I think, uh, I think, I don't remember if it was Jimmy's end or act of faith was the first one I saw, which was the first one was released. 
Well, they put out Act of Faith and Jimmy's End together. I know because I was in I was in the screening at St. James End Working Men's Club. Uh, Jimmy's End, I was in in the place where it was filmed. Wow. Watching the, which is also when I went to the uh, the, uh, the toilets afterwards. I was sat at the urinals and the guy who played the clown, the actor, walks in and stands next to me. And I just feel like that is the most, that's the most secret cinema moment I've ever had in my life. It's like that. So to some degree, I, I can't watch that film without thinking of those strange moments of watching it. It's, um, I, I agree. It's, I, um, I, I did enjoy them, but I can see why some people didn't. And I thought they were, um, I was probably showing a bit too much um, David Lynch inspiration, things like the Twin Peaks was definitely stronger than that, which I know Alan just doesn't like saying or, or or comparing um, this isn't different i had a big argument with uh, my fellow political writer at the time brendan Connolly, which that was kind of the way he taken it i saw it much more as like this is the british franchise of the black lodge um and i didn't realize how accurate it was because um here's the other weird thing the film the show while clearly a continuation of the pieces is a very different beast because the show pieces films are deliberately disturbing and horrible and they're, 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 they're gross they're there to try and get into your skin and make you feel dirty and the film is to some degree it's almost it's called watching the film no it, <laughs> takes, it, it takes those aspects that you're aware of and it and it totally integrates them but it's something very different it turns it into a comedy it's a comedy the, the show the film is much more of a comedy drama it's funnier it's weirder it's lighter but all the aspects of showpieces are underlining it. So in some ways, like showpieces is the underworld to the show. So all this stuff is going on underneath the underneath the streets in this underneath in this kind of hellish dimension that's been created. And we and we get to find out that's it. We get the origin. We get to find out what's going on. We so it the show make it's a lot of the what the show is is making sense of showpieces. So it's all the weird stuff of the of, of show pieces is there in the show um but it's much more of a yeah but this is this is why so we get an actual narrative we get something that makes more sense so in the way that um the show pieces were more about feeling i guess or way they made you feel um the show is more of an intellectual exercise like well, well why what's actually going on let's get the plot and we get it and for someone like me I loved it because that's just the kind of stuff I like. I like to find out why all this stuff happens. I love the continuity of it all. I want to know who happened, why happened, why is this going on? Why are some people going to this place and others not? Who are these people? Are they God? Are they the devil? Are they working class comedians? And you get the whole thing laid out for you. And you basically get, uh, the show is very much like a Bible, I think, for the show. So you can totally, again, watch it without having to see any of the show pieces. Um, but if you watch show pieces, if you or if you can get through show pieces, however you you see it, you get a, I would say you get a much greater enjoyment from the show and understanding of what the show is. What the show is, and I have no idea what it looks like. For well, the trick, well, pieces. the trick of it is, is I've forgotten so much of. I think I, like I, I only saw the uh, J- Jimmy's End and uh, the first one, and um, I was seeing this kind of well because I, I I tried watching last night, and they're supposedly on Shutter, but not in America. Or at least I couldn't find them. No, and also they only do three of them in the streaming thing. So there's like, I said, there's five films and they only put out um, Faith, uh, Keeping Faith, Jimmy's End and Hungry Hearts as like a, as a triple. Okay. They don't do upon uh, Reflection and uh, Professional Relationship, which, again, Professional Relationship is one of my favourites because that is the lowest budget. It's just Matt Brighton, Matterton in a dressing room and they're rearranging... Um, as a, 
talking and rearranging Scrabble letters, which are only uh, uh, the, the, the letters of DNA being constantly rearranged into different word letters and, and meanings. And I think it's, it's a bit, bit like what he did with um, Promethea, with all the anagrams. Hmm. And that's really fun. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I was going to say that's a more wordplay thing. Like, I, that, I yeah, was thinking yeah. of... Oh, it's, it's really, it's thoroughly wordplay. It's one of the more, more wordplay things he's done. Um, so you, you get those things, but they're basically telling about a horrible place that is going on, an afterlife, which is not like any afterlife that you may be aware of, although it has certain similarities to some Judeo-Christian traditions and some Egyptian traditions as well. Um, and then the show, the film, it kind of like says, you know, that, that's happening because of this. Hmm. And you've basically kind of got like a localized hell. It's just a, a hell just for Northampton. Oh, yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I love the idea that every, maybe every city could have one. You could all have our own little local, because it, what, hell has always been portrayed as this kind of huge, big thing for all of humanity to suffer for all these different levels and things, but all but all of humanity go that. And I love the idea you can have a helm that's just... In each town. Yeah, and, and probably, yeah, like the, and, and I guess that's how you could, you could spin off into the... Uh, just that people have created these things that are just for the people, just for local people, or if, if you're passing through. And, and the idea that you, you're stuck where you are. I mean, um, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the sitcom Ghosts. I've, um, you know what? I've heard you talk about it, but no, I haven't. I've, I've, yeah. Well, it's, again, it's, a, it's a sitcom where all the people there people who've, who have lived in that in the house over the last few thousand years and they can't they can't leave because this is where they died so until they can find a way to move on you're stuck where you are and with the people you are all great sitcoms are about uh, the people you are stuck with and you can't leave whether that be workplace or families or prison or whatever and, and ghosts does that really well and it's that aspect i think which is in the show because it's you you you, you can't leave you're stuck here. You can't. You can't. You can't move on. You know, I, I'm going to throw this at you. One of the things I was thinking of when watching this, having a kind of substantial prequel or setup, and then your main meat, if you want to call the short films the prequels. Okay. And, That's uh, fair I, think, I think you can. I was thinking of um, Neonomicon and Providence. That's you. You could definitely do that. You could even go for what's it courtyard courtyard as well. Because mm. really, that, actually, no courtyard is probably a better one then in that yeah, regard. Yeah, there were really no. Because I think when you have like Providence and Neonomicon, there's I think there's a knowledge when he's writing Neonomicon of what Providence would be. But in courtyard, that was I think that was just off the cuff. I think I was just saying this is a fun little take on HP Lovecraft. And then he thinks about it a bit longer. He goes, Ah, oh, well, maybe continue and go on to these things. And I think that I mean we know how the show was kind of created. It was initially just. Um, uh, some a, f- a few words that Alamo was jotting down to help a guy who's putting together a, a burlesque video. That's what it began. That's, That's what it, it, I was going to ask him. Mitch, Mitch Jenkins' background too, like he's a photographer and a video director before he started yes, jumping. That's right. That's absolutely. And he was and he'd been doing some stuff with Dodging Logic, the magazine that Alamo mm. was doing. And it was just like he's doing a, a video of the sort of the burlesque dancers who appear in Dodging Logic, and could Alan maybe write a few words to help make sense, and <laughs> ends up writing a lot more. And you've now got, um, yeah, six short films and a movie and a five-season planned television show with the first episode fully scripted. So, you know, you really... You, when you work with Alan Moore, you are playing with live ammunition. You never know where it's going to go off. It's going to hit someone. You never know what, what, what the consequences might be. What I, I I was watching the movie thinking of the TV show after because you mentioned on his on the article you posted on his birthday uh, Thursday um, <laughs> all this stuff about the five seasons and I remembered you mentioned it before and that was that was what I was I just 
the, the fact that it still can expand and, and just the, it was a yes. world, you know. Um, yeah, and that's what I think the film, the film does. It, 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 you get to see tiny little bits of this world. The fact that all the brand names are different, all the different builds, businesses, there's, there's huge stuff going on. You get, you get to see little glimpses of clearly what is a much wider world. And I think it's, I, I like that. In, there's a lot of films that I like. Um, I think uh, it's Patrick Williams called them, calls them Gonzo Blockbusters, where you get to see fully created worlds. You get little bits of it, and a lot of people find it really unsatisfying, especially because usually the, the characters and the acting is generally crap. Things like uh, Mortal Engines or um, Valerian, um, those kind of movies where... Um, Jupiter's Rising, which I, again are often heavily criticised, but I utterly adore. And a lot of the time, it's because of those. I get to see glimpses of a world, and then I get to create the rest of it in my head. And I love that kind of stuff. And I get that with um, I get that with the show. Um, it's, it's, again, most of these films have got far too huge, big budgets that will never make back. I think Fifth Element's probably the only exclusive one one that did. I mean, if Alan Moore is anything, he's an adult world builder. Like he, he <laughs> you know. Um, well, the, the the reason I thought of Providence though is structurally the show has like a structure where it feels like an outsider, um, you're a cipher into the world building, and he's investigating, trying to find it out. Only Providence kind of ended in a more apocalyptic way, and, and the show, at least, you know, at least like, it, it felt a little better at the end. But uh, yeah, well, it, it was it was certainly an ending. Yes, <laughs> uh, we uh, yes we've much. I mean, I love the way. Um... Oh, I love how it's all a. Everything is a prequel. It's what's really coming. All the, all the, all the, all the subjects in the Nomicon stuff. It's, it's all. It, it all becomes. Yeah, this is terrible. Things going to happen. It's just a prequel to them all happening. So, um, and and it's just like Lovecraft is like seen as a, as I guess, guess a, a prophet of the future rather than a telling of the past. And so I, I, I thought that was I, again, I really really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, I guess the, um, I mean, going into the film, um, um, the show, yeah, yeah, yeah I, it starts out with a, a, the possessory credit is Alan Moore and Mitch Jenkins. They share it together. Yeah, um, absolutely. do you have any idea how much Alan Moore, I mean, he was acting in it. He wrote it. Uh, he's an executive producer on some of the shorts. How much would he have been around for, was he through all pre-production and post-production you think? Um, I'm... I'm... What do I know? What do, what, what do I know? What do I think? I mean, he was obviously always on set. Um, no, I don't think he'll have been around for the, uh, a lot of the like, the editing and stuff. I mean, he'll have been there, but it would have been a constant presence, if I'm correct. I think that's right. I mean, Mitch Jenkins, you know, Alan Moore respects Mitch as a, as a, film, as a filmmaker. Okay. So he wouldn't have to be on his... It's, it's just like, you know, if you work with an artist, you're not actually having to stand over their shoulder. You're working, you, you're working, with, people, you're working with people you respect, and so you and basically you can let them get on with it, and you'll be told if there's any issues. And usually, Alan is here at this point, just do whatever. This this Should goes this goes back to my thing I was making earlier about uh, writers and pencilers. Where, uh, but at the same time, you, I'm curious. I I think one of the reasons I was underwhelmed with the shorts, but the movie worked for me for the most part. But I still think that like I want to see Alan Moore and Mitch Jenkins master the medium a little more. Because I mean, like one no, of the things that, I that's, that's, I think that's fair. That's, that's fair because it's like because these are all your first stabs into a medium. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. I... No one, no one is basing Alan Moore's entire career on Maxwell the Magic Hat. <laughs> fair point. I, I guess. Very good. I still enjoy this. The, the, whenever yeah. I look at Alan Moore um, at his heights or my favorites of his, uh, there's a part of me that like 
thinks of him as the master formalist and the movie version of that to me is Kubrick and like they were my, those were my two favorite go-tos as a teenager sure. and so half of Alan Moore's stuff for me is it's it's so formal until a stylistic tick comes into it and then that stylistic tick is very justified by the story and expands what the story is in a beautiful way that's why I mean I want to see him master the medium and like I hope a TV show would do five seasons of a TV show might get him get him closer to that. Yeah, that, that's possible, very possible. And odds are he probably wrote the whole damn thing as well. So yeah, I mean that's and that, that and that's what he's doing to, to, for the next five years. Yeah, I mean it. It I, as far as I understand, it is out to people. Um, obviously, there's you know the, there's a how it would get made, but I believe the streaming services are being approached. And have been and are welcome to being approached, and I think I, I honestly think it's going to come down to someone at Netflix or Apple or Prime or whatever who really really liked Alan Moore mm. stuff when they were fifteen or sixteen, and suddenly get they get the chance to sign off on one. That could well be the exact thing that happens. I don't know. We'll see. Well, one of the things the tricks I did to get into the movie too, which was very helpful, seeing as like I'm so used to reading Alan Moore, I turned on subtitles. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it also, I know it's also it's, it's an a it's an English accent. It might not be a totally familiar English accent. I, I didn't need, I don't think I needed them, but um, that's quite an interesting way of doing it. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I mean, watched, I actually watched a lot more stuff on site. Sometimes we've got growing up with kids when the kids were younger. We always put subtitles on to help their reading. But um, I've been watching more stuff with subtitles yeah, lately. It's and it's helpful, but um, but it just a lot of the details of the world came out more. Like, and you, it, turned a, you turned it into a comic book, didn't you? It is exactly what I was doing. That is exactly what I was doing. Precisely. I you you adapted it to comics. I just kept putting pause on, seeing it as a caption. All right, I'll I'll tell you this. This is something which does which just made me think about is that it's often been said that comic books are the medium is the medium that engages your left brain and your right hand side brain at the same time because you're watching and you're reading simultaneously. The only other example of that is a subtitled movie. And so it could be that you actually did recreate more of what you've experienced when reading an Alan Moore comic book by turning the subtitles on than, than, than just being able to read his words. It might have actually have tapped into the way you actually do enjoy uh, a really good comic and maybe a really good Alan Moore comic. No, I, that's, a, that's also... Uh, well, I, again, going back to the mastery of the medium, like half the dream stuff... Did, it felt the movie. It's, it's Alan Moore's amazing writer, but the movie felt so crammed and writerly, but in a good way. Because, but at the same time, I needed to read it. So then, and and then there are moments where, like, I probably, if I wasn't reading, could have fallen more into the film a little, engaged with it. I mean, as much as I, I know, I really liked it, but like, but I mean, I kept pausing and writing down the different phrases just because that's what I'm used to. <laughs> like little things on the side of the shop. Uh, my favorite was the escapism or the, the, the uh, car sign that said, I break for poignant memories. Like I, I just kept pausing <laughs> and writing the stuff like that down. But That's that's the stuff I know. That's the stuff that I, I, I knew I'd enjoy, but I, I go back on second viewing for that. Well, oh, oh, and so I, I, I also one thing that was really helpful. Also, um, Alan Moore stuff is I, I love reading it for the first time, but Alan Moore stuff is almost always better reread. So I watched it again this morning, and you'll pick you, yes, you'll pick up aspects you might not have missed, missed the first time. That's the usual way. I still do that with Watchmen. There's every now and then there's little bits, and when oh, I didn't don't think I remember that. I don't or I didn't notice that the first time. 
sugar cube, the sugar cube trail, things like that. So I remember picking up that a long time after. Uh, yeah, there, there, um, I mean, and 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 that's that's the great things of a max maximalist writer. Like, there's there's so I I, I want to see him nail nail it in a way. You know what I mean? Where like, yeah, I, I keep saying this. I just want him to do five seasons of this. Um, uh, yeah, five. You know, well, five seasons in a movie. We should probably do first. So yeah, that works for me. Reverse community. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite gags in the whole thing was the uh, the two Tims, the, uh, the the detectives. I was just thinking about that. I said, are you going to talk about the detectives? Yes, that's very, very funny and very, very silly. It is the silliest thing in that film. And it is beautiful. And it, it, it does speak to a much darker, weirder, what is, what is, how did they get to that situation where they do this? Isn't this weird? Isn't this wild? And everybody else treats them as absolutely to be respected. Except there were other people in the waiting room. Because this is not a joke to anybody. Because they have yeah. uh, the waiting room is in color, but when they go inside the office, that's when it turns to black and white. Yes. But it, it also reminds me, and this is, um, I don't know how much it's actually, it reminded me more than anything of, I guess, 1950s, 60s, 70s British comic books where you would, uh, like the uh, kids' anthologies, things like the Beano or the Dandy or the Beezer, where you would have these kind of characters. And I, I in those kind of strips, it would be quite acceptable to have two tiny detectives who stand on each other's head, shoulders and become a, a big size detective and be running their own little mini I spy private eye kind of thing. The, the, um, the second gag I thought of, the um, the Bojack Horseman character, Vincent Adult Man. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> I've forgotten that, yes. Yes, you're right. There, there is a certain, I think, he's certain kind of creating that kind of weird, innocent... Slightly innocent, but batshit craziness that we could, when we were kids, we totally accept. That's that's absolutely fine. And then you look at the adult eye and you go, well, well, in what world would these people have any actual respect? Why are people sitting in the waiting room to see these people? What, what's, what's, what led here? And I love that stuff. I would totally bowl over, over that. And I want to see more. I'm into the TV series because we're going to get the flashback episodes, I tell you. <laughs> it's like birth. I'm going to go on, how do we get here? Or maybe we never will. It remains some eternal mystery we could all debate about. I was, I thinking, I was also thinking the Jackie yes. Quick stuff from America's Best Comics, the, the kid stuff. With, yeah. yeah. Like... Well, again, that, that, that's, no, that, that Jackie Quick absolutely based around those kind of um, uh, high concept com, com, comics like Roger the Dodger or, or the original Dennis the Menace, things like that. Um, and so many good really throwaway high... jokes too in there too, which the whole movie has oh. so many good throwaway jokes. Yes. Absolutely, and and also, because it's an Alan Moore thing, and it's set in Northampton, he gets to dump all of the all the Northampton stuff he's been going on about in every interview and everything for years. Where he gets a character who's a tourist guide, and so gets to talk about Northampton. Oh, you could just feel the, him, him finally, finally, I have the, I have the chance to, to get this so much wider. Who in the film? Who stops herself and is just like, oh, I'm doing my tour guide spiel, and I didn't realize it. I didn't try. Uh, yes, it, it was. Yes, he, he, he definitely, let's say, he took advantage of the situation that had been presented to him to, uh, to do a bit of a, do, do a, bit of a uh, like a cut and paste from some things he might have been previously working on. There's a moment at the end of the film when um, 
um oh the tom burke the fletcher is uh going with or arguing with faith and revealing his whole thing and she says uh i'm stuck between an easton villain on one hand and a troop of light entertainment ghouls and specters and the thought in my head went to that really famous <laughs> captain britain panel where he's just like do you ever get halfway through a oh, sentence yes. Does this, does this, is this, is that, yes, that's the, um, isn't that the alternate world, the, not the, uh, the, the omniversal kind of stuff where he's yeah. talking, I, I can't okay. believe I am, and then it's just, those 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 I'd seen that panel so much before I actually read the issue, and I thought the whole issue was going to be much more goofier than when I read, it was like serious, and then you just had that. No, it's a, it's a, well, that, that's why it works, because it works, because it's yeah. in the middle of yeah. the multiversal war kind of thing, so I just wondered if I had that on. I don't have it quite to hand. It's in one of my other bookshelves. I can just grab it and pull it out. Sorry. Yes. Do you know anything about? Yes, it's. How, how much of the budget for this would have been, or comparable to what, like a pilot's not budget, quite. or? And uh, no, I don't know. Not. I know there were some budget issues. I'm aware of certain scenes that had to be cut because of budget issues. Okay. So um, that was that would definitely be an issue. There was something I was talk. I got the chance to chat to some of the cast after the screening, which was great. Um, but there was, there was a, a scene where a car gets, instead of a car just crashing, the car gets split in two by going through a like a telegraph pole or, or a lamppost or something along those lines. And so you end up having like two completely separated cars, uh, half, half, half of the cars. And that, I believe, I would have to be told, yeah, we can't do that. We'll do something else instead. Okay. The car crash. That's not the but scene at the, 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 the scene at the end when Faith almost crashes the car and it just like stops right before. I but Yes, I believe you would have actually had the car in split in two uh, lengthways um and i don't know if it was the details of that or anything else like but that, that's just one thing i know was uh it, it had to go because of that and, on, and i don't know the details but yeah so but all it means is i know that there were clearly uh budget issues involved in this film which you know isn't the worst thing as i said if you can't if you can't afford to you know you can't show you can say it you just be a bit more inventive come up with other things instead to grab the audience um you just can't sometimes throw all the money on the screen i guess Whereas you, whereas you can in comics, in comics you can do everything. Yeah, you, you, you don't know comics. Well, I mean, and then the opening shot kind of like tells you that's going to happen where it starts out from the world and comes into the puddle, and then it does the, the puddle being like the um, one of those Alan Moore tricks. I think was the cover to Watchmen Four. Like, how many times has he done a thing of a reflection in a puddle, a word in a puddle? But he, then he likes the, a reflection in a puddle. Killing joke. Got to remember all this. All yeah, the puddle, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. Totally, totally. Um, but then the rest of the movie is is so much talking heads it's so much dialogue scenes throughout i i i i, I, I don't so, sometimes they're, they're painted yellow so, so, so they're painted gold i don't know there's there, there's a lot of good looking people interesting costumes and stuff and so, but you're right there is a lot of it's a it's a heavy dialogue film absolutely yeah. to be fair it's also an alan moore film and i kind of think if you're expecting it to be light in terms of dialogue you didn't go yeah then yeah you pretty would watching this film i guess maybe i'm just thinking in the back of my head of uh you know me being in an editing room and wanting alan moore's creativity to be in an editing room i or how to how such a highly visual writer you know i mean as much as wordies of scripts are obviously like no one would ever accuse alan moore of not being visual so that's that's that's, that's, that's true I, it, it may be a budget thing like i said i don't know one thing that went and there may be others that might have gone as well um and there's also this is this could be an issue. I don't know if it is or not, of people being just too afraid to cut Alan Moore's dialogue because it's Alan Moore's dialogue. I could totally buy that. I could totally buy that. Um, it's the. I mean that every time 
I've had to call him up. For whatever reason, I've had to phone him up. And every single time, I've been so afraid about it. Like, what if I call him in the middle of a thought? There he is. He's thinking something. And then I call him. You know the um, the, the, the Paul Ock story about um, about the, uh, the, uh, the Albatross um, poem? Um, that get, the guy uh, gets called up in the middle of a... As, as when, he writes it, when he's writing a poem and then someone knocks on the door. Mm-hmm. The guy, the man from Paul College, and he, and he loses the entire poem. And he has to write something else instead. Um, and there's always that idea that I, if I call up on the I might pour lock in. And there's the idea that, you know, um, if you are editing, what's your words, are, are you destroying something that you've loved so much and it's amazing? And you go, well, yeah, okay, that's all fine. I'm going to get rid of all that and replace it with a shot of a lemon. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, Alan's I mean, very good at actually editing himself in the comics, certainly. He's, he, he cuts lots of his stuff out. But then, you know, it's a lot easier for him. Well, and that's why I, I think you get better if you go his is going along. Because there's so much, because he has had such an effect and people got him so much a goodwill and respect and stuff, it must be really hard for people who kind of, kind of like, it must be really hard for Alan to, in some ways, like, kind of live up to that kind of, because he clearly doesn't feel about his own work the same way that other people work. He, it's there to be chopped and changed. It must be weird to be held in such reverence yeah, when you no. are just you. Because you're just you. I'm just me. He's just him. And to have people have that kind of reverence to the stuff that you just knocked up over breakfast, that has to be weird. And I'm sure that's true about all sorts of artists and creators that want to become very successful and things. Who, I don't know if there's a, you know, imposter syndrome or Superman syndrome going on, but it must be weird to be in that kind of situation I th- and to want people to edit and then them not doing it. I don't know. I sometimes feel like when you're making something dreamlike in film, words are sometimes in the way of that. So that's why I, I think it's not that I, I'm, I'm okay with a wordy Alan Moore movie. I'm, the, the issue is more of a, a movie that relies so significantly on dreams and switching back and forth between reality and dreams. Well, at least at least he sums some of it. There's one of those lines that if it's too silly to say it, sing it. And um, I'm just remembering some of the, uh, is, um, the, uh, the, the Mr. Moon song. <laughs> That does, stick, that does stick in my head a bit, I have to say. Well, I was going to ask, what you, would you think? Like, because uh, I really, it took me a second, but I really started to dig uh, the the you know his character's last name is Metatron. So, like the yeah, yeah like Metatron is the Metatron and Match Bright, so it's the so it's the, it's the voice of God and the voice of the devil. Yes. I just think Alan Moore making himself God in this story, or just the the creator of this being in. Well, he's God, but he's not actually God. He's someone pretending to be God. So it's the it's the pretense of God. He is he he he, he pretends to be God. I am the, the great I am, all that stuff. So he's definitely just a character who's pretending to be God, but he is pretending to be God. Now in the original shorts, he could well have been God, as well as being, um, medicine. So, but in this, but in the film, we get we find out what actually happened, and yeah. no, he isn't, but what he is instead, um, and that's great. I really enjoy that. But yes, I, I think you're right. Alan Moore casting himself as God would sound like you know the utter hubris but in the show it's very much a no it's all a pretense it's some someone pretending to be god and that feels much more like <laughs> someone pretending to be god because of course yeah, when you're a writer that's who you are you know that's exactly writer, that's exactly my god. point that's exactly because uh you get to move all these puppets around but they're not real on our on, on my last episode we were talking about with my friend keith he was talking about uh vonnegut using or talking writing himself in and talking to kilgore trout stuff like that or uh um philip roth uh, writing with talking to his characters um like there's something about the creator putting himself in but and making himself god that just is is there's levels upon levels upon levels it's 
And especially, and you know, and I'm, I would say I was kind of impressed. Alan Moore is a presence, and he didn't look like it, he looked. He was good in it. He was good. Oh, he's a good actor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a he was a he was a, he was a fine actor. He was as good as any of the actors in there. I knew he's a good performer, he's, but he's a good actor. In. Yeah. He fit in. It's it's weird to see that. Um, yeah, I think people have kind of grown into that. Uh, Neil Gaiman just a really nice uh, piece in a recent uh, Radio Four drama here um, has played the Duke in. Oh, sorry, the name the name's gone, but he turns up as a character, and it's like, oh, that's really quite good. If I hadn't known that was Neil. I'd have thought that was, that was a fine actor. So, you know, maybe they're getting better. You know, they've been they've been hanging around a lot of writers and artists and producers and directors. Maybe it's rubbed off on them a little bit. Mm. You think writers just hang out in rooms? Um, uh, Rich, well, I think... got, what, what's the line? What's the line? Pay attention to the background. It's just the foreground trying to hide. <laughs> that's in the show. I love, I love that. That's one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines in the, in the show. Um, uh, and, um, oh, that, 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 and you were talking about the, um, the, the Tims. What's that? Um, solar panels on the roof don't pay for themselves <laughs> yeah i love that i love that that's what i it's, it's such an old line turn it on brand new joke have the two tibs narration is is just is so me there was a a line um i reread uh, alan moore's uh how to write comp for comics thing a while back just because there's a throwaway in there that talks about uh raymond chandler um and how the noir's raymond chandler works and one of those lines ended up in the two Tim's narration about just like being world weary and. Oh really? Oh, I, I you know what? I, I'm gonna have to find that now because that's worth it. That, that, that that's there we are. That, that that I could probably write an entire bleeding cool article just about that. I need to warn you now, but I'll have to look that up. Thanks for that. So uh, I did want to ask you about what you know about the uh, Alan Moore's uh, books he just sold. The uh, what's it? The um, uh... very very little. All I know, I have reported. It's pretty much nothing more than that. He's he's solid, solid books. Uh, a, a series. It's a five book he, series he and a story. short story, or it's a short story yes. collection. The short story collection is called Illumination. Yes, and then there's a series to follow that a London set thing. Basically, as far as I can tell, it'll probably be doing to London what he's been doing to Northampton for a while. And there's a much richer, there's even greater richer. I mean, I, I expect if you're looking for stuff to be recycled. I expect to see a lot of William Blake. I see a lot of his audio CD stuff, highly working, things like that, um, which is set in the kind of areas of London. Um, I, okay, here we go. Um, I see a simpatico between the show and Last Night in Soho. I think there's a similarity in take and look, the idea of um, the other world beneath you, um, or other worlds, one world affecting the other, um, and I, I, when I was watching the last night, so it almost felt like I, it, you know, it felt a bit like what if the show had been directed by Edgar Wright to some degree? Because there's there's definite similarities in tone, and I think they both talk to each other about stuff. Huh. I know there's I know there's no Edgar Wright credit in the show. Really? Thanks to, and I know they have talked about Edgar Wright's talked about talked about Alamo. So I know they, there's something there. I I honestly I think there's a certain. Um, meeting of minds that have been expressed in these two very different films. And one of you know, one of the ones about Northampton one's one is a supernatural film about Northampton, one is a Ghosts film in every about room Soho. in London. Both both yeah, both reflecting, yeah, and then they all reflect the, the place in their set. So what we might be seeing with these books might be something a little bit closer to Last Night in Soho maybe. But Alan Moore's taken it. Do you know anything about um is is the show his only chance at making more films or is there i mean if he's writing five books right now i can't imagine screenplays are on his brain no the only one i know of 
I, is is the show continuing the show distribution? Now there's been other stuff over the years that hasn't kind of gone anywhere, but um, that's the only thing I know about that's got uh, that's that's being actively you know. And of course, you know, Alan's a busy man; he's getting on a bit as well. Right. You know, um, maybe it's the maybe it's the thing you, maybe he doesn't really want for the TV deal to happen. I don't know, but um, it's really there. And I think um, I mean I, I want to see it. I want to be able to see the show, TV show, the show, the show of the show. Oh God, that's the other thing. It's gonna have to. They're gonna have to come up with a different title to it. <laughs> I mean, it's, as it is, so I have a movie called the show. I have a TV show called the show. I don't know. It starts, it starts to feel a bit abstract. I, I everything I'm saying is rhyming with O. I need to stop immediately or go. I would understand if he didn't want to, considering his experience with um, the film industry. I can understand if he's like this is it or there's very little beyond the show but i kind of be interested in him to master the medium that medium too i just want to see well, more so. also the thing the thing i always every now and go back to is um uh, big numbers it's going to be a tv show at some point really and I, yeah oh it'll be mapped out a lot of big, big chunks of it'll be mapped out as a tv show uh, for channel four but it didn't happen um it's going to be basically completed as a tv show that was the, that was the plan at one point so more work was done on it anyway it didn't happen but I kind of get the feeling that some of that probably went into the show, maybe. Um, and maybe we might see some of it if there was a TV show of the show. So what I mean. Um, but we might be able to see some of that um, find its way in. I don't know. Maybe. That's just me pure speculation on my behalf. Pure speculation is what I asked for, and I, I welcome. Appreciate it. Um, and it's also, I was just about other, other weirder things um, coming out of the show. Uh, Siobhan Hewlett, who plays uh, Faith. Is also in the show, as well as the, the, the show pieces. She is um, appearing in a new film uh, called The Lost Girls. Really? Station. She's playing. I think she's playing. When I think she's playing Wendy uh, Darling, but it's not based on the on, on the Lost Girls graphic novel. But it's using the same title play on Lost Boys, obviously. Um, and um, she's also um, writing, directing, and starring in a, in a film based on a Neil Gaiman story. So. Which is how I, when I went to see um, the first night for Neil Gaiman's Ocean at the End of the Lane, and when making its West End debut the other week, uh, Siobhan was there in the uh, in the audience as we got to meet up afterwards. And was like, "Hello, you! Hello, you!" So uh, that was good. Yeah, you got a lot to live up to, haven't you? I know. So, so that so there are these things do kind of spin off onto their own little worlds. Even if there's no TV show spin off, there are other things that will exist. The people who've come into this world don't get to leave quite as easily as they might have liked, which you know. That's also part of the show as well. You come to Northampton, you'll never leave. The only reason I knew about the uh, the West End uh, Ocean at the end of the lane uh, at, uh, thing was from Bleeding Cool, so uh... <laughs> it was very very enjoyable. I'm good. sure it'll come to at some point. Or there'll be there'll be other versions of it. Um, Rich Johnson, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Um, thank you for doing this. I'm so glad we, we managed to make through technology. <laughs> we found out one of these weeks. I'm going to enjoy myself. Thank you.